Your Bibles this morning. I've got four verses here for you to look up, but I'm going to make it easy on you. I'm just going to give you two. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, get that in one hand, Revelation 3 in the other. I'll read the first two I have here, but Second Thessalonians 3, Revelation chapter 3. You know, when you get to heaven, other than seeing the face of Christ, it's going to be those hands. He's going to reach those hands out to you, and you're going to look at those things. They still have the scars there. And uh, that's going to be mind-blowing when you're comprehending all of that and all that that has to do. Second Thessalonians 3, Revelation chapter 3. We're all there? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for that song this morning. What a blessing. What a thought. And any time you want to blow the trumpet this morning and show us those hands, we would gladly go. But Lord, until then, we pray that you would minister to us. Lord, we need help. We live in a very wicked world. Things are going crazy around us. We need to stay true. So, Lord, I pray this morning that you would minister to us. Your children need help. Speak to them. And, Lord, all you've got to work with up here is this piece of dirt. Without you can do nothing. You and I both know that. I pray you'd take this clay vessel and fill it with your spirit because we want to hear from you, not from the vessel. Your power, your passion, your words, your wisdom. Put a watch by its mouth and a guard by its lips. But, Father, minister to your children this morning. Stand behind this pulpit, sit next to us in our seats. But please speak to us this morning. We're here to hear from heaven. And we'll leave here disappointed if we don't hear from heaven. So, Father, please minister to us. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to read two verses, 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians chapter 2, but you hold the two that you have. We'll get to those in just a second. 1 Corinthians 16, 9 says, For a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas, <coughs> excuse me, to preach Christ's gospel, that a door was opened unto me of the Lord. Now look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting at verse 1, he says, Finally, brethren, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. Revelation chapter 3. <coughs> Revelation chapter 3 is written to the church at Philadelphia. And it says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth. Did I give you the right verses on that? Is it, is it 7 and 8 or 17 and 18? 7 and 8. Okay. I'll start over. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, no man can shut it, for thou hast little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Four interesting verses this morning. 
And I'll try to put them all together here as we go throughout this. In the beginning of World War II, the early stages of World War II, there was no Air Force. There was the Army Air Force. And um, Germany had overrun Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Belgium, the Netherlands, took aim at France and began to occupy France. Uh, English citizens and English soldiers in France had to meet at the beaches at Dunkirk and be ferried across over to England, and then Hitler set his sights on England. What they were dealing with was a very advanced and sophisticated war machine. The Luftwaffe was uh, superior to anything else anybody else had. That was the German Air Force. Uh, the German tanks, the panzer t uh, panzers and what have you, were superior to what anybody had. Their weapons were superior. And so here's Europe in the throngs of the control of the Nazis and uh, England looking at the attacks that are coming their way <clears throat> and they have no way to stop it except for one thing. And that was they have to build these aircraft. And if we can bomb the factories and bomb the ball bearing plants and if we can bomb the workers and if we can bomb all the material places that go into building uh, these, uh, these aircraft, that would be the way we would stop them. And so <clears throat> England began with B-17s, B-24s, and B-29s. In fact, they were trained. Many of them were trained at Falcon Field in the day and went over to England and then England would fly nighttime bombing raids where they would fly over the factories and what have you and pour their bombs out and try to destroy the means of which they could build their army and air force. The U.S. entered this thing and they um, did daylight raids, daytime raids. And so you've got continual bombing of the German uh, means of building their war machine. And it was said by the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey, quote, that Allied pow air power was decisive in the war in Western Europe. The bombing had reduced German rail traffic, aviation fuel production, steel production, and other aspects of the wartime infrastructure by 50 to 90 percent. Millions of people were occupied in repairing the damage and replacing the goods destroyed by bombing. Nazi armaments minister Albert Speer said that the bombing created a third front and that without this great drain on our manpower, logistics, and weapons, we might well have knocked out Russia, uh, knocked Russia out of the war before your invasion of France. In fact, when we did at June 6, 1944, the Luftwaffe could only put 100 aircraft into the air uh, to try to stop the advancement of the American troops. In the Pacific, we were island hopping, and one of the islands that the Marines would land on uh, was an island called Iwo Jima. You know Iwo Jima because you've seen the famous picture and the statues and all that of Mount Suribachi and the Marines grabbing the flagpole and putting it up and holding the American flag up. And um, that was an incredible battle because the Japanese had their artillery into the sides of the hills and the mountains and our troops had to go against that. But fortunately, we had battleships sitting outside of Iwo Jima and their long guns could reach Iwo Jima and reached the Japanese um, artillery and, and by the bombing, by the shelling, I should say, of Iwo Jima, it allowed our troops to gain control of that island. The Vietnam War, 
basically started in 1954 when the French had control of an area known as Dien Bien Phu. And Dien Bien Phu was a, was a fortified area and thought it was impervious to any kind of attack. And the Viet Minh, they were called at that time, the Viet Minh, uh, decided to attack. And the French thought, there's no way. There's no way their artillery is ever going to reach us. There's no way uh, we've got aircraft coming in and dropping in supplies that we need. There's no way they're going to do anything to us. Not realizing that the Viet Minh were able to miraculously, uh, one of the great feats of war for the enemy was to drag their artillery up the sides of a mountain and uh, find caves or dig caves out to put the artillery in those caves. And they could oversee Dien Bien Phu, and being from that height, they could fire into Dien Bien Phu and the surrounding areas. And after they fired, they pulled their artillery back in the cave. They fired shell, they shelled Dien Bien Phu for 51 straight days without having any damage done to any of their artillery. They eventually, their troops would eventually uh, take over the outlying areas and force all the French troops back in and... Uh, on May 7th, after a four-month siege, they fired everything they had at Dien Bien Phu, to which the French could not handle. And after the fall of Dien Bien Phu, the French pulled out of the region completely. And by the way, that particular Vietnamese uh, army was led by a fellow named Ho Chi Minh. But it was the artillery that they couldn't handle. Some of us watched desert storm take place and we learned a new word we learned the word sortie and uh, we saw pictures of jets bombers taking off of the aircraft carriers a new kind of warfare to us in which the aircraft had laser guided missiles they had a target to go to and they would fly to their target use the laser guided missiles with pinpoint accuracy hit the target and uh, head back home and we did that for how many days before any troops ever landed uh, on the ground. And the artillery, the bombing from the air is what gave us superiority in that particular battle and gave us the victory. Now, I'm saying all that this morning to get your mind thinking that way. In every one of those instances I gave you, there was bombing or shelling from above, either out of the aircraft or from artillery to weaken the enemy's stronghold. <clears throat> I want to preach you this morning about prayer. And uh, many times you think about prayer, you think, well, prayer is, is that thing that gets me close to God. Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, prayer is a way to get uh, my problems answered. And yes, it is. Prayer is a wonderful way to get your problems answered and claiming the promises and all that. Uh, but prayer is something else. Prayer is a weapon. Prayer is a weapon. And I don't know if you ever conceived it that way. Um, and sometimes when we don't comprehend things uh, in different ways, we have a hard time grasping it. I know that uh, personally, I, I still have a hard time in this digital world. Uh, I am a, I'm, a, a, I'm a pen and paper guy. Uh, I'm old school. Somebody says, you know, I need to remember something. I've got this, this little pad in my pocket, and uh, it has my notes on it. It's got notes from a long time ago, but I've got a bunch of notes in there. And that's how I keep track of stuff. And 
I know there's, I've got all the note programs and stuff on my phone and iPad and all that, and I try to use that, but it's hard for me to think this way and then think that way. And sometimes that's the way it is with prayer. We, we always think of prayer as a certain way. You know, I'm going to get close to God, and I'm going to spend time with the Lord, and we're going to fellowship together. And, and again, all that's true. But let's advance a little bit, okay? And let's look at prayer this morning as something more than just a time of fellowship and more than just having your prayers answered. Let's think of prayer as a weapon. Oh, preacher, you realize what you're saying? Yeah, I realize what I'm saying. And uh, think of it this way. Prayer is God's air force or prayer is God's artillery that when properly used can weaken the enemy's defenses. Now, if this conversation is foreign to your ears, remember that you are in spiritual warfare. So I didn't join. You don't have to join. When you trust Christ as your Savior, automatic enlistment goes right with it. Isn't that wonderful? So from the time you got saved, you were, in, you were not only a child of God, but you're in God's boot camp. And God is preparing you to function in a world where you go through spiritual battles and spiritual conflicts. You need to get that in your head. And we have weapons at our disposal that a lot of times we don't even think about using. And prayer is one of those things. It is a necessity to pray. Jesus said in Luke 18 and verse 1, men ought always to pray and not to faint. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. How are we doing with that? How are we doing with that? You know, the easiest thing to do is to pray and the hardest thing to, to, to consistently do is to pray. You ever realize that? Take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. What's in Ephesians chapter 6? The armor of God. And I hope you got it on this morning. The armor of God. If I ask you to name the armor, the, the pieces of the armor of God, how many could do that? You ought to be able to do that. Helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, loins good about with the truth, feet shut of the preparation of the gospel of peace, having the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit. That should be that should be as much a part of your spiritual life as breathing in and out is in your physical life. But there's something that's always missed. Look at Ephesians chapter six. Look at verse eleven. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So what is spiritual warfare? You're going against the devil. So I thought I won that when I got saved. No, it only started when you got saved. Verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, against but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Am I exaggerating this thing? Verse 13, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. You have an evil day coming. Say, so when is it? I don't know. And I don't know when mine is. But there's an evil day coming. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now watch it. Stand therefore having your loins girded about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the helmet of salvation, excuse me, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherein you should be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, 
So there's your elements. I don't remember it in that order. I remember it in this order. Helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, loins got girded about with truth, feet shadowed with preparation of gospel of peace, having the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith. Okay? I remember it like that. You remember it however you want to remember it, but these are all parts of your armor that you need to be wearing. But we've missed something. Look at verse 18. Praying always. Praying always. With all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So part of your armor is communication with God. And that's a very important part. Since World War I, and I'm being very warfare-minded today, but starting from, from World War I, we had these people that are very important, often overlooked, but very important people. They're called frontline observers. And from World War I, the job of the frontline observer was to go out somewhere between where you are and your art artillery is and where the enemy is, and you're to go out there so you can see the enemy and so you can communicate back with the artillery. And the artillery will shoot, and you'll say basically, too far. And they'll shoot again, say, too short. And they'll shoot again, and it'll land right where it's supposed to land. And the frontline observer will say, fire for effect. And the artillery knows where they've got. That's the old days. Uh, and it hasn't changed that much. You still have frontline observers. Uh, the difference is that the frontline observers today use GPS and lasers to have pinpoint accuracy, but they're still there, and they still have to go out there. A lot, of, a lot of the tactics with artillery is to be behind a hill, so you can't get hit, and you're shooting over the hill. But if you can't see where it's going, you know, you're wondering what, what, what's happening. That's the job of the frontline observer to say you got it. The frontline observer will get out there nowadays with the GPS and the laser and give actual pinpoint, uh, what's the term, the, um, the numbers, what have you, uh, of the location, can actually pinpoint the location, send that back, and the artillery is set up for that, and they fire, and they fire very effectively. Frontline observer, he watches, he sees where it's going. Uh, I'm saying that to say this, that in our prayer life, we need to see where the enemy is working, where his strongholds are, and aim for that. You know, it's, I've heard people do it, and, and I understand the heart behind it. But people will say, let's pray for all the churches and all the missionaries and all that. You know what that's doing? That's taking our artillery and just shooting it all over. It's when you pray for a specific missionary or a specific church about a specific need that's when you can pinpoint that thing right where it needs to be. Go to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. How many have ever thought about prayer as a weapon? We complain about all the troubles in the world. We complain about it. everything that's going on in Washington. We complain about what's going on in Arizona. We complain about what's going on in our neighborhood. We complain about what's going on in our families. When's the last time you have, with pinpoint accuracy, prayed to the Lord about that particular situation? Revelation chapter 8. Take a look at this, starting at verse 2. He says, I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets, 
And another angel came and stood at the altar. Now watch this. Having a golden censer. Golden censer is like a cup. If you've ever been in a Catholic church, you'll see a guy swinging a thing around. It's got gun chains and it's got like a bowl and there's incense in it. Okay? That's the golden censer. Having a golden censer and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints. So the incense he's given is with the prayers of all saints. And I've told you before that one of the things that symbolizes prayer the best is incense. Incense burning. I told you my mom used to have these little incense things. looked like an upside-down golf tee. And you'd put it there, you'd light it, and uh, it wouldn't, you wouldn't see a flame. You would just see ash, a little bit of red and some ash. And you'd smell this beautiful smell, but you'd notice the smoke. Where's it going? It's going up. And that's what incense does or anything does when, it's, when it burns. The incense goes up. And incense pictures our prayer because here we are praying. And where do they need to go? They need to go to the throne of grace. So our prayers kind of ascend up. That's what he's talking about here. So there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints. So he's got this censer. It's got the prayers of the saints in it. It's got more incense in it. It says upon the golden altar which was before the throne. So that's where he's going to offer it. Verse 4, and the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. So the prayers are getting to God. Verse 5, and the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices, thunderings, lightnings, and earthquake. So you realize what just went on here? The prayers of the saints are going up to God. The response to that is directed back to the earth, and there is a supernatural effect upon the earth. That's the way our prayer lives should be. Our prayers should be going to the throne of grace with a specific request, a specific uh, desire. It gets to God, and then God sends that, the answer to that right back down to the earth, and there is a supernatural effect that takes place. Okay. Now, go to Acts chapter 1. There's a catch to all this. There's a catch to all this. But look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we have the first prayer meeting after the ascension of Jesus Christ. Okay? Look at verse 14. And these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. So you've got about 120 people that are in this room. And they're having a prayer meeting. What are they praying about? What are they praying about? I mean, this is the first prayer meeting after the ascension, after Jesus Christ left and said, I'll be back in a while, in a long while. But they've seen him go. Here they are in the upper room, they've been given a promise to tarry at Jerusalem. But what do you think they're praying about? Well, they could be praying about this, what's going to happen in Jerusalem, because they really don't know what's going to happen in Jerusalem. All they know is the Lord said, tarry at Jerusalem, and at the right day, which will be the day of Pentecost, you'll be, with, you'll be endued with power from on high. So maybe they're praying about that. Maybe... They were praying about the last thing the Lord said to them. What was the last thing the Lord said to them? Anybody remember? It's called the 
Great Commission, which was the last thing the Lord had said. In fact, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, that version of the Great Commission, you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, or world. That was the last thing he said before he left. Maybe they're gathered together in prayer thinking about that and thinking, Lord, how do we do that? How in the world do we reach the world? And maybe they're praying about finding the will of God for that. How do we do that? Maybe they're just praying and saying, Lord, how do we carry this on? How do we carry on the work? You worked for three and a half years and you did what you did and you rose from the dead and now you're going, how do we carry this thing on? Whatever they're praying about, ten days later they're going to see the results. Look at Acts chapter 2. And look at verse 41. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. After Peter's great message in Acts chapter 2, it says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So 10 days after the first prayer meeting after the ascension, you have 3,000 people coming to know Christ. That's pretty good. So if they're praying about the Great Commission, it started right here. If they're praying about the continuing work of Jesus Christ, it started right here. If they wondered what that endowment endowment of power from on high was all about, it was right here. As 3,000 people repented of their sins and trusted Christ. Look at verse 42. It didn't just end there. Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. They didn't just come in, say, yeah, this is great. I'm going to trust Christ as my Savior. See ya. You know, a lot of churches go through that all the time. They supposedly lead somebody to Jesus Christ. That person comes in. They make the profession at the altar. uh, Or they come to the altar and get saved. And uh, then they're immediately baptized. And you never see them again. You never see them again. Or you're going door to door and you lead somebody to Jesus Christ and you go back the following week to invite them to church and they don't even want to answer the door. Not in this case. In this case, they continued steadfastly in what the apostles were preaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And then look down at verse 47. There are more results. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Every day somebody's trusting Christ. So you have 3,000 who are continuing to follow the Lord. And every day somebody else is added to the church. But it started with a prayer meeting 10 days before. I'm going to give you some stories this morning. And you can do what you want with them. And it's a shame the stories I'm giving you aren't modern. We have to go back. But I'll go back and I'll give you some stories. For example, and these are recalled by R.A. Torrey. R.A. Torrey was a great apologist for Jesus Christ, great preacher for Christ. And he talked about a re- revival in 1857 in New York. There's a missionary there by the name of Landfear, who all he did was organize noon prayer meetings. Could that happen in America? No, we'd be too, we'd say, we want to eat lunch. These people were willing to skip their lunch, I believe, at noon and pray. And it goes on to say that at first the attendance was very small. 
At one meeting, there were only three present, at another two, and at one meeting, he alone was present. But he and his associates, associates persisted in prayer until a fire was kindled that spread throughout the whole city, until prayer meetings were being held in every hour of the day and night, not only in churches, but in theaters. The fire spread to Philadelphia, then all over the land until it said that there was no part of the country where prayer meetings were not going on. And the whole nation was moved, and there were conversions and accessions out of the church everywhere by the hundreds and thousands. Now, just in case you didn't know, that didn't happen in Louisville, Kentucky last year. This is the real deal. And things were changing in New York City. They were changing in Philadelphia. Boy, if New York City and Philadelphia could have that today, the mess that those two cities are in. But in 1857, this, this is what was going on. And how did it happen? People got together and prayed. A similar awakening, though in some respects even more remarkable, in Ireland, Scotland, and England, 1859, 1860... The most important human factors in the origin of the wonderful work seems to have been four young men who began to meet together in an old schoolhouse in the neighborhood of Kells in the north of Ireland. Here night after night they wrestled with God in prayer. About the spring of 1858 a work of power began to manifest itself. It spread from town to town and from county to county. Hundreds of persons were frequently convicted of sin in a single meeting. Men were smitten down with a conviction of sin while working in the field. Imagine that. A guy's out plowing in the field and suddenly he's under conviction about his sin and uh, smitten down, they said. In some places, the criminal courts and jails were closed because there were no cases to try and no criminals to be incarcerated. Louisville, Kentucky? Don't kid yourself. Here? Yeah. The fruits of that wonderful work abide to this day. Now, it would be the early 1900s. Many of the leading persons, even in the churches of America, were converted at that time in the north of Ireland. The great Welsh revival, often referred to by revivalists. The great Welsh revival, 1904-1905. And I told you before, I gave you the story how Trump is connected to this thing through, through relative, relatives. The Great Welsh Revival, 1904-1905, was unquestionably the outcome of prayer. 100,000 conversions were reported in a year. Of course, not all of these proved steadfast. Doubtless, there were extravagances in some places. But after making all allowance, it was one of the most remarkable works of God in modern times. How did that start? Prayer meetings. Prayer meetings. Another commonly reported story is what's called the Haystack Prayer Meetings, which were held in Williamstown, Massachusetts in 1806. And it's viewed by many scholars as the seminal event of the, for the development of the American Protestant missions in subsequent decades and centuries. Williams College students, Samuel Mills, James Richards, Francis LeBaron Robbins, Harvey Loomis, and Byram Green, names you've never heard of. You don't go to the Christian bookstore and find their autobiography. I doubt it. Met in the summer of 1806 in a grove of trees near the Hossack River, Hosick River, in what was then known as Sloan's Meadow, and debated the theology of missionary service. So these guys got together and talked about missions. 
and a thunderstorm came up. And so they're looking for shelter, and they found a haystack. I think one of these haystacks where there's kind of shelves set up, a big haystack, and so they were able to get underneath the thing. And they stayed there until the sky cleared, and there was a discussion while under the haystack of the need of missionaries to Asia. And it was Mills. Mills seems to be the leader. It was Mills who said, you know, we can do it if we will. We can do it if we will. What would we say today? We can do this. We can do this. Talking about getting missionaries to Asia. And God didn't really use these guys to go out. But they became the catalyst behind 1810, the 1810 America's Foreign Mission Society, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. In 1812, this group will send out the first group of five missionaries to India. Now, you know these names. Adoniram Judson, Luther Rice, Rice University in Texas, I believe it is, whoever that is, named after Luther Rice, Samuel Newell, Samuel Knott, Gordon Hall. These are the ones that would head out to various parts of Asia. And you know Judson the most. Adoniram Judson, been called the father of Baptist foreign missions for his work in Burma. He left Asia in his early 20s with his wife, of only seven days. Hey, honey, let's, we're going to honeymoon in Burma. How would you like that? And it'd be six years, six years before Judson would get his first convert. I bet that was encouraging, huh? Here we are in Burma. We're going to lead these people to Christ. And year after year after year after year go by. And no convert. You know, the average American today would probably, after the first six months, say, ah, maybe we made a mistake. Six years. Have you realized yet that spiritual things take a while? Some of you have been praying for people for six years, 16 years, 26 years. Sometimes spiritual things take some time. I know in this generation we don't like that. I've told you before, I've stood at the microwave and said, hurry up! But after his death in 1850, the Burmese government noted 210,000 Burmese Christians. So a man is faithful. He's there as a result of prayer. He's a part of a missions board because of a prayer meeting under a haystack. And by the time it's said and done, 210 Burmese people have trusted Christ as their Savior. Reverend Mrs. Samuel Knott, Gordon Hall, Reverend Mrs. Samuel Newell also traveled on the maiden missions. Mills stayed behind in part because of his ability to promote the cause of world missions in America. So Mills, who was the head of that prayer meeting, didn't go because his gift was to promote the cause of world missions. The Haystack prayer meeting sparked the missions enterprise in which we still remain in debt. I mean, we showed pictures of Robinsons in Zambia, and they were there, and they connected with another missionary who was there, and that guy probably, you know, when he first went there, connected with the missionary. These guys didn't have any of that. This is stuff, they're just starting it. They're going, I guess we would say, cold turkey. There's nobody other missionary there to get advice from. And they're learning as they go. 
This haystack prayer meeting sparked the missions enterprises to which we still remain in debt. There was just a bunch of college students meeting for a time of prayer. And Mills, think about this. I mentioned this in Sunday school this morning. We're talking about Saul. Saul being the great intellect, the great expert of the Old Testament, how God used him to, to do what he did. And I mentioned this morning, I said, don't discourage yourself if you're not a great intellect. In fact, if, you're, you know, if your IQ is not you know, where, you, where, where normal people are, uh, don't be discouraged. God can use anybody. Listen to this. Mills was such a poor student that he was not allowed to participate in graduation ceremonies. They said, you don't even come to the graduation ceremonies. You did so bad. In other words, he couldn't even pass that. But it is interesting that the valedictorian, who was also named Samuel, missed his speech because he was drunk. So God took this mediocre student who couldn't even participate in his own graduation, but he had a radical passion for nations, and God used him to influence the church in America to be missions-minded. Don't know what happened to the drunk. I gave you that verse in um, Revelation chapter 3. And uh, if you're familiar with Revelation chapter 3, prophetically, there are seven churches. They each represent an age in church history. There's the Ephesus, Ephesus church, the Smyrna church, the um, Pergamos church. There is the Thyatiran church, the Sardis church. All of these are periods of time in church history where things are going bad. In fact, before the Philadelphian church age, the Sardis church age was probably the worst as far as persecution of Christians. But then the Philadelphia church. And he said, and we read it in the verse, God said, I've opened a door that no man can shut. He said, you're weak, but you've kept my word. And a door is wide open. And those other verses I gave you were about doors that were wide open. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, 8, I'll read it again. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works, behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. That's missions. That's the beginning of missions right there. I have given you an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast little strength, hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. And many great men went into the mission field at that particular time. One of which was a guy named Henry Martin. Henry Martin was a scholar, a missionary. You know, they considered him the apostle to India. He only lived 31 years. He only ministered for six. But he served with such intensity that he accomplished more than many who lived on allotted 70 years. He started schools in India leading many Hindus to Jesus Christ, gave us the first Hindustan translation of the scripture. Then he began to work with Muslims in Iran. He is also known as the first Protestant missionary to Muslims and made a translation of the Bible into Persian. It was said of him, oh, to be able to emulate his excellencies, his elevation of piety, his diligence, his superiority to the world, his love for souls, his anxiety to improve all occasions to do souls good, his insight into the mystery of Christ, his heavenly temper. These are the secrets of a wonderful impression he made on India. But you know what? He didn't think about himself like that. 
He thought about himself like this. He said, not that I have yet recovered, from my former, recovered my former strength. I have considered myself sufficiently restored to prosecute my journey. My daily prayer is that my last or late chastisement may have its intended effect and make me all the rest of my days more humble and less self-confident. He said, I'm trusting too much in myself. I am, and the Lord chastened me about that. And he said, I hope I, get, I, hope I learned the lesson. That's the way he thought about himself. And these are the type of men that went into the foreign mission field during that period of time. And we still have men today going into the foreign mission field, trying to serve Jesus Christ. And the source of that, and what I'm trying to get at this morning is the source of this is prayer. Is men getting together not just saying, oh, God, save everybody. That's a stupid prayer. I understand the heart, but it's a stupid prayer. It's men getting together under a haystack saying, Lord, Asia needs the gospel. What can we do about Asia? How can we get the word of God to Asia? How can we get the word of God to India? How do we get the word of God to Iran? Praying. Taking prayer as a weapon and aiming it at a bunch of heathen who need the gospel and begin bombarding that area with prayer and waiting for God to do something incredible. Not only has it been demonstrated over and over again in a large way that widespread revivals are the certain outcome of intelligent and prevailing prayer, but in smaller circles, the power of prayer has been demonstrated over and over again. You don't have to have a large group of people. Jesus had three he took with him as he was about to go into Gethsemane. And he's always loved the small prayer group. We have prayer meeting here on Saturday night. And sometimes we have five, sometimes we have six, sometimes we have four. But we get together and pray. And we usually divide it up, two or three over here, two or three over there, and we pray. We have prayer meeting on Sunday morning. Maybe you didn't know that. In my office at 8.30, we have prayer meeting. And if my office gets too filled, can you imagine that? If my office gets too filled, we'll come out here. We'll divide up in little groups out here and pray. We've never had that problem. I told you earlier there's a catch to this. That's the catch. Saturday night prayer meeting, 8 o'clock. I spend most of my day here on Saturday. And my wife spends most of the day on Saturday, doing whatever she does. Most of the day on Saturday. And uh, we leave about 6, 6.30. Then I got to be back. I leave the house again about 7.30, quarter, 8 to get back here for prayer meeting. By the time we get done fellowshipping and praying, and sometimes the fellowshipping seems to be more than the praying, uh, we leave at 9 o'clock. I leave at 9 o'clock. Get home after 9 o'clock. Do you think my flesh likes that? You know, about 7.30, my flesh says, just tell them you're sick. Just call somebody and say you're sick. You won't be there. But we're here. That's the catch. 
Everybody knows there's prayer meeting on Saturday night. If not, I don't know what you've been thinking of or what you've not been reading. I know what you've not been reading. That prayer meeting is Saturday night, 8 o'clock. And the catch is, you want to do it? Oh, preacher, I know, I know, I know. But that's the catch. Why don't we have these stories like they had in the 1800s? Lack of participation. God doesn't have to have a bunch of people, but it sure is nice when the heart of the church is on the is beating at the same beat, the same rhythm. The love for missions, the love for evangelism, the love to pray to God, to ask for his help. I don't like going, coming, I, I get here, we, we try to get here a little after 8 o'clock on Sunday morning. Uh, I would rather leave, it, leave the house at 9.15 like the rest of you and get here right at 9.29. But I'm here for a prayer meeting. In a very obscure village in the state of Maine, where apparently nothing has been accomplished by the churches, a few earnest Christian men got together and organized a prayer band. They selected apparently the most hopeless case in the village and centered their prayers upon him, importuning God for his conversion. The man was a drunk and a wreck. In a short time, the man was thoroughly converted. Then the praying band centered its prayers upon another man, the second hardest case in the village, and firing for effect, he was converted. And so the work went on until about 200 were converted in a single year. You say that's the exception to the rule. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it just needed some people to faithfully pray and aim their prayers at, a, at an individual. And a certain a little village in the state of Michigan, of all places. Way, way off from the railroad, a Presbyterian and a Methodist minister united in an effort to win the unsaved to Christ, and they were backed by a faithful praying band, a group of people getting together to pray with them. While the Presbyterian preached and the Methodists exhorted, this praying band went in the back room crying to God for his blessing on the work. They would select individuals of the community to pray for. In some instances, these men would come into the meeting the very night they were being prayed for, and be converted. The work grew to be so remarkable that ministers and multitudes of the people would drive for miles to witness a wonderful work. I'll give you another one. Five college students visited London one Sunday to hear Charles Haddon Spurgeon preach at the Metropolitan Temple, Tabernacle. They arrived early and were met by a kind gentleman who offered to give them a tour. At one point he asked them if, he, if they would like to see the furnace room in the basement. This was a hot July day, and the students weren't interested in doing that, but not wanting to appear rude, they consented, and their guide quietly opened the door, and there in the basement of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, there were several hundred people fervently praying for the service that was about to begin. It was then that their guide introduced himself. It was none other than Charles Spurgeon himself, and he wanted the college students to understand that prayer was the power source of his ministry. Interesting. Our home church in Toledo does that or did that. I don't know if they still do it. But there would be a group of people that would be praying while Pastor Saul was preaching. So our prayers need to be aimed maybe a little better. 
We've got an election coming up in November. Has anybody heard that? There's a couple people running to be president. There's a few more wanting to be president. <laughs> We've got an election coming up. Boy, I sure hope we're praying about that. So I want my guy to win, God. No, we want the will of God to be done in America. There is a um, group of truckers and bikers that plan on putting together a convoy. It's called the Take Our Border Back Convoy. They're protesting illegal immigration, bringing attention to the problem, especially for those who only watch the dying legacy media. We've got a problem with immigrants. You know what bothers me? There are, there are NGOs down there, non-government organizations that are down there. They're trying to help the kids and trying to take care of these immigrants as they cross the border. Where are the preachers? There are some preachers in this country that came back from a foreign mission field that spoke Spanish. There are some preachers in this country that know how to speak Spanish. There are Christians in this country that know how to speak Spanish. Wouldn't that be the place to go? Talk about El Paso. You talk about Eagle, what is it, Eagle... Eagle Pass, wouldn't that be the place to start a ministry? I said the same thing when the Mariel uh, migrants came over from Cuba. And there are Cuban churches in Miami that are there to minister them now, but where were they at the beginning? Why do we miss this? Why do we miss this? So there are a lot of issues that we need to be praying about. And I have always told you, and I'll continue to tell you, when we have men's prayer meeting here and ladies' prayer meeting, we do more for this country than Sean Hannity or the rest of the talk radio has ever done for this country. Because all they do is talk. Hannity gets his talking points and he repeats them over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again. And it's, everybody likes to hear it because everybody's opposed to whatever. And nothing is done. Nothing is done. But we can talk to somebody that can actually get some things done. So when men's prayer meeting is, in, is, is going on and ladies' prayer meeting is going on, we are doing more for this country than anybody else is doing for this country. And when you as a Christian pray for this country, you're doing more than anybody else is doing. And if that's the case... There's a cost. First Corinthians sixteen nine. For a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. Second Thessalonians three, starting at verse one. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified, even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For all men have not faith. There is a cost. And for some of you, the cost would be leaving your house at Saturday night at seven thirty or getting to church at 8.30 on Sunday morning. Can you imagine that? Actually getting out of bed early to come to church to pray? And if that's the case, don't ever wonder why things aren't happening. We have to pay a cost. It's not wicked men and what have you that are dealing with it. It's us. We are the biggest problem. We are the biggest hindrance to our own growth as Christians. We're the biggest hindrance to why things aren't getting done. 
were the hindrance. That's why I have to go back to the 1800s to find the stories. Because we are the hindrances right now in, in the 2024. And until we deal with that, nothing is going to be done. So prayer has many aspects. And we must never forget that prayer can be a spiritual weapon, a powerful spiritual weapon. A spiritual weapon that can break down the enemy's strongholds. It's part of the armor of God. If you want to consider it to be God's air force or God's artillery, help yourself. That's a good illustration. And that behind all the revivals that we all read about are people getting together and praying. God has given us an open door, especially in America. Maybe we need to declare war not only on the devil in this world, but maybe we need to declare war on our own stinking flesh. And let your flesh know, I am getting out of bed early, and I am going there late, and I am going to pray, and I am going to do everything I can do to try to reach this world for Jesus Christ. One way or the other, it's up to us, isn't it? We have the arsenal. We have the capability. Do we have the desire? Father, we thank you, Lord, for speaking to us this morning, although this is pretty difficult. Because, Lord, all of us are guilty. All of us are guilty in this thing of spiritual warfare. You've given us what we need, and we just don't seem to use it. So, Lord, I pray that you'd bless our church here. Bless the prayer meetings that are going on. Help us, Lord, to do what pleases you. Father, we would love to see a real revival take place, not this silly nonsense we saw last year, but we'd like a real revival to take place. We'd like to see the people of this community come to know Christ as their Savior. Some of us have relatives that we would love to see come to know Christ as our Savior. So, Lord, we need help. We need help with that part of us that is the desiring part. Help us to learn to say no to the flesh and yes to you. With heads bowed, with eyes closed, the altar is open. You can do as God would lead you to do this morning. Now I'll say this, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, none of this means anything to you. What I preached this morning was for Christians. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want you to understand and understand very clearly that if you die without Jesus Christ, there is no purgatory, there is no reincarnation, there's only eternal hell. If you die with Jesus Christ, eternal heaven. And you're the only one that can make that choice. And it's not a hard choice to make. You have to admit that you're a sinner. And everybody knows you are because we all are. You're a sinner. You cannot save yourself. None of us have come close to even being good enough to save ourselves. 
We need a Savior. And you have to make the choice of what you're going to do with Jesus Christ. And the choice is one of two things. You can ignore him, you can deny him, or you can turn to him and confess to him that you're a sinner, that you can't save yourself, that you believe he died on the cross for your sins, shed his blood to pay for your sins, and then rose again the third day. And if you do that, he'll give you the gift of eternal life. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. He'll give you eternal life. Never take it back. But that's your choice. That's your choice. We're going to give an invitation here in just a minute. Brother Walter is going to be leading.